you know, over the past few weeks. We started five weeks ago, and we are looking at church history from a point of the original is the perfect. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. And so when you think about, you read church history, you're not reading about an evolution of better, you're, you, you are seeing a, a, a devolution, a, a shrinking, a, 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 a minimization of the original intent till finally the original intent is almost unable to uh, imagine. And so we talked briefly our first week about the errors and false doctrine in the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles confronted. Uh, Jesus and the apostles warned us, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto him, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, say, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Verse 11, And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Verse 24, For there shall arise false Christ, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, even they shall deceive the very elect. And so from there, we, 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 we discussed the errors of the early church, the Council of Nicaea, uh, the overview. It was a, a debate between the nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, one side said that Jesus was a, was, a, was a lesser than the Father. He was basically a big God, little Jesus. There are people that still believe that doctrine. I have debated with people that I know in the flesh that believe in a big God, little Jesus. That's an error. It's, it's erroneous. And that was one of the doctrines being dealt with at Nicaea. But the conclusion of that was no less, maybe even more so, an error uh, where the doctrine of the Trinity was formalized and accepted to be the doctrine of the Godhead and they even changed the original mode of baptism there in the Council of Nicaea. And so we have discussed every week about how absolutely corrupt and erroneous the Catholic Church became. Uh, the biggest reason is we see it in Nicaea and we see it throughout the, the, the evolving nature of the Catholic Church is they began to respect and believe in as much or more so, more than the scripture, more than the original, they accepted decisions on what other people said about the Bible. And they began to put faith in the church rather than in the Bible. Even to the point that people believed that as long as you were part of the Catholic church, you would be saved. And if you weren't a Catholic, you wouldn't be saved. Didn't matter what you did. Even if you did bad, you could go to purgatory and somebody could pay your way or pray you out. And so there was this point that, that Christianity, that as it was known throughout history, had become so perverted, the Catholic Church had to uh, fight against the Scripture being translated into languages people could understand because there's no way they could read the Bible and see how in error Catholicism had become. And so last week we talked about the Reformation, we talked about William Tyndale 
and he was one called the morning star of the Reformation in that <clears throat> his intent, his pursuit was the Bible is the the supreme and reigning authority over all uh, doctrine and people should be able to read it for themselves and not trust a priest or a church. And uh, we talked about various things, but I, I want to view church history and the Reformation and how it brought restoration. Everybody say restoration. The error of the Reformation is they thought they could skim off the top the worst problems they thought. They, they, didn't, they, 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 they saw the problem in the Pope. They saw the problem in indulgences. They saw these various glaring errors, but they didn't have enough biblical understanding to see that it was corrupt to the root. And rather than trying to go to the, the original, they just tried to reform what was existing. But in the Reformation, you see shades of restoration. Everybody say restoration. And so I, I want to just kind of highlight a few points of, of the restoration that happened. Today, many refer reverently to historic Christianity and absolutely accept as equally important to Scripture and dismiss Scripture in favor of the personalities and conclusions they like and reject others. If you ever hear anybody talk about historical Christianity, they're not talking about biblical Christianity. They're talking about Christianity that broke off from Catholicism, reformed Christianity. And that was good, but this is the goal. This should be the gold standard, the only standard where we get doctrine. Somebody could say, well, you sure sound repetitive. Well, that's all right. I'm, I'm repetitive on purpose. And so we see the, the, the shades of Reformation Although Luther came to some false conclusions, there were things that he brought to the forefront that were absolutely a rejection of Catholicism and adopting a biblical idea of repentance. Luther wrote that repentance should be a change of the inward man and should change the actions, the deeds of that person that is repenting. And in this, Luther and I agree. I, could, I would say that in that respect, you could call me a Lutheran. <laughs> Don't call me a Lutheran because there's so much connected to, because I'm more than a reformed Christian. I am going to the restored Christianity, the original Christianity. Uh, salvation is by faith. It was, a, it was a, a declaration of Martin Luther, and it was true. His error was he added a word. He said we're saved by faith alone and I would say his error was the insertion of that singular word alone because we're saved by faith in everything everything we do the Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin what does that mean that everything that we do in faith in pursuit of the word of God it must be done in faith if you're going to worship, worship in faith. If you're going to give, give in faith. If you're going to pray, pray in faith. Everything we do, not just simply a mental ascent that I believe in God, but it is a, a whole soul uh, a dedication to say, 
I believe in God and you can tell because this is how I live my life. This is how I treat my kids. This is how I treat my wife. This is how I deal with my money. I'm a believer, not based on what comes out of my mouth, but I'm a believer by what happens in my life. And salvation by faith is true. We're saved by grace through faith. This is absolutely a biblical truth. And that was a shading, though it was not complete, it was a departure from Catholicism. Uh, Another uh, shading is that salvation is for everyone. During the Reformation, a significant stream of the Reformation movement is they they, they came to an incredibly erroneous conclusion uh, under the name of John Calvin. He came to a fatalistic view of God that, that, that salvation is only for the ones he chose and that he only died for a certain few. And those for the certain few in which he chose and which he died for, there is nothing they could do to not be saved. If God chose you, you have no free will in that. There's nothing you could do to be unsaved because he chose you, he died for you, and so you will be saved. It's fatalism. Because the dark side of Calvinism is if Jesus didn't choose you and Jesus didn't die for you, it didn't, wouldn't matter what you do. Believe, say, do, go. There's nothing you could do to be saved because of limited atonement, limited availability to salvation. That is an anti-biblical, I would even say an anti-Jesus doctrine. And that there's a significant portion of Christianity today that believes that. And so in response to that doctrine... John Wesley is one of the significant figures that introduced the concept that anybody can be saved. Can somebody say praise God? Anybody can be saved. And he even went further that even though you've been saved don't mean that you can't be lost after you've been saved. You've got to believe. Believing isn't a moment. Believing is a life. Uh, Salvation is is a it happens in a time, it happens in a process, and it happens ultimately. You may get saved when you're born again at the age of seven. You repented of your sins. You were baptized in Jesus' name. You were filled with the Holy Ghost. You got saved in a moment. And from the age of seven and maybe 16 or 18, whenever you finally started living for God, you began to be saved. You, you got saved because you went to church on Sunday. You kept, you, you, you're in the process. You're in the struggle. You're in the, the just shall live by faith. You're living every day by faith. That's, that's a saved life. But ultimately, none of us are completely, fully, uh, uh, ultimately saved until Jesus comes. And at the moment of his return or your last breath, The state of your faith at that moment will be the final determination of whether you will ultimately be saved or lost. The Bible says that as a tree falls, there it shall lie. Uh, Jesus said through Ezekiel that if a righteous man is righteous his whole life, if at the end he becomes wicked, all his righteousness will be forgotten. But if a wicked man is wicked all of his life, but at the end becomes righteous all of his wickedness will be forgotten it's good to serve God as a young man as a child as a young adult and and as an old man but the ultimate determination is we don't know how long we're going to live and we need to be ready that any moment when Jesus comes he's going to come for us 
like a thief in the night. Whether it's in death or whether it's in the rapture, we need to live like today is the day I'm going to meet Jesus. Amen. And that was something that came out of the, the, the restoration through the reformation that, that, that everyone can be saved. A sanctification. Uh, John Wesley, I actually printed out. I didn't bring them down. I, I'll give them to you. He had 22 questions that a believer should ask themselves every day in their devotions. And it was, it was, the, the, it was for the holy club. If you wanted to have a holy life and be a part of the holy club, 22 questions that you ask yourself. Uh, one of them was, do I have pride? Am I judging other people like a Pharisee? And you, you would use those as personal introspection to determine in that moment, on that day, in that morning, am I pursuing a holy life? And that was a shade of the original that filtered through this process of the Reformation. John Wesley said, I continue to dream and pray about revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. He was motivated and hungry for a move of the Spirit. And it was in that holy impulse that holy passion that, that the Pentecostal movement was born. Pentecostalism was born in the revival holiness movement. All throughout America, somebody would set up a tent or they would uh, set up a, a brush arbor and they would have prayer for days. They would preach for days. They would gather for days hungry for God. And God did great things. And if you study even before Azusa Street, people were uh, receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Even before Azusa Street, uh, 1913, uh, people were being baptized in Jesus' name. But as significant within the world of Christianity, there began to be this restorative impulse. What happened in the beginning? And so uh, October 1900s, 1900, Topeka, Kansas, a small band of believers led by Charles Parham started Bethel Bible School. And they searched the scriptures. They came up with one great problem. What about the second chapter of Acts? And in December 1900, Parham sent his students at work to diligently search the scriptures for the biblical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice, we're not reading what Parham said. We're reading that Parham said, let's go see what the Bible said. And when they studied the scripture, they came back with the same answer. When the baptism in the Holy Spirit came to the early disciples, the indisputable proof on each occasion was that they spoke with other tongues. That didn't come from a pope. That didn't come from a church council. It came from the scripture. It was coming from an, an impulse of restoring and living in the original pattern, plan, and message of the apostles. In fact, if you can see this image on the screen, uh, this is uh, the Azusa Street Mission. This is the building where uh, the, the apostolic, uh, what I would consider the apostolic seeds came from. And notice what the name of the church is called. You see it? Apostolic faith. It was that impulse toward the original intent 
of the Bible that, 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 that motivated these people. You find all kinds of terms of Pentecostal or apostolic prior to Azusa Street, prior to Topeka. They knew there was more. I don't know how many times I've, I've dealt with people that ha- are, have no doubt have genuine, deep faith in Jesus Christ, but either because they never heard of it or they even heard it taught against, and they experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost for the first time. Almost every one of them would say, why didn't somebody tell me about this? Because they either haven't heard, or there even many people teach against, or if they don't teach against it, they minimize it, or ask people don't talk about it. Because it will create controversy. Even uh, at Azusa Street, 1906, William Seymour, the one-eyed 34-year-old son of Free Slade, was a student of a well-known Pentecostal preacher, Charles Parham. He was preaching of the evidence of the Holy Spirit being speaking in tongues, though he had not yet received it. The story goes that he was in Houston, Texas, and Parham was teaching in a church, Bible college, there in Houston, Texas, and Parham had not received the Holy Ghost yet, but he was teaching because he saw it happen in Topeka that the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost was speaking in tongues. And it was the South. And Charles uh, William Seymour couldn't sit in the room with the whites, but he sat in the hallway and listened to the teaching. Huh. And, and he was invited to come to Los Angeles and, 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 he, and he came and Seymour arrived in Los Angeles on February 22nd, 1906 and within two days he was preaching at the corner of 9th Street and Santa Fe Avenue. During his first sermon he preached that speaking in tongues was part of the first biblical evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. On the following Sunday, March 4th, he returned to the church and found that Hutchins had padlocked the door. The elders of the church rejected Seymour's teaching primarily because he had not yet experienced the blessing about which he was preaching. Condemnation of his message also came from the Holiness Church Association of Southern California, which the church had affiliation. However, not all the members of Hutchins Church rejected Seymour's preaching. He was invited to stay in the home of congregational member Edward S. Lee, and he began to hold Bible studies and prayer meetings there. And so, you see this, this, this ever, someone will begin to preach, believe, and experience a certain truth, and there is great rejection. Even if they see it in their Bible, why would you reject what the Bible says? Because it is in contrary to what you've been taught. It, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable with everybody that's not teaching that. And so people on every, every path to restoration... There was great rejection and persecution that came on those that were in a stretch for restoration. Seymour and his group of new followers soon relocated to the house of Richard and Ruth Asbury on 216 North Bonnie Bray Street. White families from local holiness churches began to attend as well. The group would get together regularly and pray to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. On April 9, 1906, after five weeks of Seymour's preaching and prayer, three days into an intended, I'd say extended 10-day fast, Edward S. Lee spoke in tongues for the first time. At the next meeting, Seymour shared Lee's testimony and preached a sermon on Acts 2 and 4. And soon, six others began to speak in tongues as well, including Jenny Moore, who would later become Seymour's wife. A few days later, April 12th, Seymour, the guy that has been preaching all this time, 
that you're going to speak in tongues when you get the Holy Ghost. He finally experienced it for himself. Now that's something to believe in something, preach something, you ain't even got yet. You've got to have a, a burden. You've got to have a passion to believe something like that. Even when people are disputing you, locking the door on you. But just because I don't have it yet, I still believe what the Bible says. <sighs> Members of the audience included people from a broad spectrum of income levels, religious backgrounds. Hutchins eventually spoke in tongues as their whole congregation began to attend the meetings. Soon the crowds became very large and were full of people speaking in tongues, shouting, singing, and moaning. Finally, the front porch collapsed, forcing the group to begin looking for a new meeting place. A resident of the neighborhood described the happenings at 216 North Bonnie Bray with the following words. They shouted three days and three nights. It was Easter season. The people came from everywhere. By the next morning, there was no way getting near the house. As people came, as they would fall under God's power, and the whole city was stirred. They shouted until the foundation of the house gave way, but no one was hurt. We kind of experienced something like while at NEYC. I don't know how many people were in our section, but they began to shout and dance and jump. And we're in uh, this section that probably has eight, ten thousand people on it. And I was holding my camera, and my camera's bouncing because that whole place, y'all remember, was bouncing. Person sitting beside me was scared. They're like, "This thing might fall." I said, "Well, if you're going to fall, might as well go down shouting." <sighs> Amen. Amen. They began to worship at 312 Azusa Street. And was frequent and spontaneous with service going around, almost around the clock. Among those attracted to the revival were not only members of the holiness movement, but uh, Baptists, Mennonites, Quakers, Presbyterian. An observer at one of the service wrote these words. Proud, well-dressed preachers came to investigate. Soon their high looks were replaced with wonder. Then conviction comes. And very often you will find them in a short time wallowing on the dirty floor asking God, to forgive them and make them as little children. Among the first-hand accounts were reports of the blind having their sight restored, diseases cured instantly, immigrants speaking in German, Yiddish, Spanish, all being spoken to in their native language by uneducated black members who translated the language into English by supernatural ability. That sounds like the book of Acts. That sounds like a restoration of the original. How did that happen? They were pursuing, they were praying, they were preaching. Even though they didn't have it yet, they had faith that it could happen. And I believe that's what the Lord is calling us all to, to a new spirit of restoration. That you know what? God still heals blind eyes. God still, God still is no smaller today here in 2019 as he was in Acts 19. Somebody said amen. And so you see this, this spirit of restoration, even though they got the Holy Ghost, they still had all kinds of various doctrines that weren't found in the Scripture. They were still part of various denominations who had their various traditions, but they got the Holy Ghost. And this, the Pentecostal, this, I hate to call it a, a, a Pentecostal movement because I don't want someone to misunderstand this as another denomination. It is this restorative movement to the beginning, to the original, to the apostles' doctrine. They are the, the, the gold standard. They are 
the only way we should pursue it. How were they saved? How did they experience salvation? What did they preach? What did they teach? How did they live? That should be the message preached, not just by Pentecostals. It should be the preached by all that claim to be Christian. That we would all come into the unity of the faith once delivered to the saints by the apostles. And so in 1914, so it's seven years, Holy Ghost has fallen. Pentecost is spreading around the world. People would literally come to Azusa Street and they would leave and get on boats and go to China and Africa and South America and Asia and Russia. They would, they, there was this, this spirit of evangelism that said, what I have gotten, Sister Carrie, somebody else needs. And there would be something that says, I got to go tell somebody. I can't keep it to myself. That one man that is an example of that was Brother Urshan. The old A. Urshan. He saw people get the Holy Ghost in Russia. And, and, and there was just this amazing outpouring, revelation of Holy Ghost baptism. Was, the religious people, many of the religious people rejected it. They would go into towns, they'd throw tomatoes at them, they'd burn their tents down. But they were so impassioned by the experience, they like, everybody needs, not just what I have, but what the Bible says. And so it was the worldwide camp meeting in Arroyo Seco in April 1913, the rebaptism of Frank Ewert and Glenn Cook in April 1914. The worldwide apostolic faith meeting was organized by R.J. Scott and George Studd and held at the Arroyo Seco near Los Angeles on a camp meeting used by the Azusa Street Mission. The month-long meeting began on April 15, 1913 and perhaps 2,000 people attended. Expectations were high and 364 people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many miraculous healings occurred as the evangelists prayed in the name of Jesus. It was stated, it was, it was significant when someone prayed in the name of Jesus. And at a baptismal service, Robert McAllister, a Canadian minister, explained that, that a single immersion, how people got baptized then, even though they were immersing them, they were immersing them three times in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost. And he, he explained to them uh, that a single immersion was the proper mode for baptism, not triple immersion. As proof, he cited the baptismal accounts in the book of Acts. The apostles baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They never baptized using the words Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as triple immersion requires. McAllister's observation planted a seed in the minds of several people. One earnest preacher in particular, though, was deeply moved by the significance of the name of Jesus. John G. Sheep spent much of the night in prayer, and in the early light of morning, he was given a glimpse of the power of the name of Jesus. He jumped to his feet, ran through the campgrounds. <sighs> I could just see this startling early risers awaken those still asleep as he shouted a new revelation of the power in the name of Jesus. His enthusiasm caused many to spend the day searching their Bibles regarding 
the name of Jesus. Where does this doctrine we come from? It didn't come from a bunch of educated people trying to figure out intellectually how we can all be at peace. But they opened their Bible and let they let their Bible have the final word. How, what, when, where, how. And so it was this that there was this great movement. Most Pentecostals at that time were a part of what's called the Assembly of God. You've heard of them. And most of these people were getting rebaptized in Jesus' name. Uh, I believe the superintendent of the Assembly of God got rebaptized in Jesus' name. Significant personages of the leadership of the Assembly of God got rebaptized in Jesus' name. And it was called the new issue. It was great controversy. And uh, someone wrote a letter, a significant leader of the Pentecostal movement was a, a man by the name of G.T. Haywood. And uh, a man wrote him a letter and said, whatever you do, beware. Beware of this Jesus name baptism. He wrote him a letter and said, I got your letter too late. Me and my congregation of, I believe, 416 people got rebaptized in Jesus name and eventually the apostolic people they were they were fine at that time to be a part of the assembly of God but the assembly of God realized if we let them stay here they're going to convert everybody into being baptized in Jesus name and so they required everyone to be a part of the assembly of God they had to denounce the Trinitarian baptism, and they had to affirm their belief in the, in the God of the Trinity. And at that meeting, hundreds of licensed ministers walked out the door, and that was the spark that brought us here. And I would say to you today, we are apostolic. We are Pentecostal. But in many ways, I am a Baptist. Because I believe you need to be baptized. There is an element of, of Luther that is true. You've got to have faith to be saved. I, and, part, and the deal is, is it, was, it was the shades of truth shining. And today, as far as I know, I am free from the doctrines of men. I am free from the denominational bonds and chains that keep people away from the full record and the unmitigated, undiluted. What does the Word of God say? And I would say to you, if any of you know something that I need to know about that's in the Scripture but my denominational uh, blinders are on, I encourage you, let's talk. Because at the end of the day, I want to be saved. Because when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a gate for Pentecostals and Baptists and Apostles, uh, uh, Apostolic and Catholic and Jehovah's Witness, there's not many branches of one body. Narrow is the gate that leadeth to life, and few there be that, everybody say find, 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 search, find. And I'm thankful today, I didn't have to dig it out. I didn't have to come from a, a long list of uh, false teachings I had to be freed from. I was blessed that somebody preached to my great-grandmother and she accepted this truth, got baptized in Jesus' name, got the Holy Ghost and lived a life 
and she witnessed to my father and and I was raised in this apostolic church and so a lot of that stuff I haven't had to deal with except in my pursuit of not keeping it to myself I'm confronted by a lot of people that are still bound and, and blind in the darkness of tradition even if they don't know it what they believe isn't what's in the Bible what they believe is what a Pope said or what Calvin said or what Luther said and it is our sincere desire and even our God anointed purpose is that by grace the Lord would help us to go and help others see what biblical Christianity is and to experience the promise Jesus said he that believeth on me Say that with me. He that believeth on me. This is what Jesus said. He that believeth on me. Say it with me. He that believeth on me. Comma. As the scripture hath said. Say that with me. As the scripture hath said. Say it again. As the scripture hath said. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I have, can't tell you how many times. One day I was downtown Clinton and I was there with the purpose of witnessing to people. And if I had a dollar for everyone that said this to me, I could have bought myself two combos at Wendy's. 15, 16 people. They said to me, well, it doesn't really matter what you call yourself as long as you believe in Jesus. And that sounds good. But which Jesus am I supposed to believe in? A Baptist Jesus, a Catholic Jesus, a Jehovah's Witness Jesus, a Mormon Jesus, a Jehovah's Witness Jesus, a Seventh-day Adventist Jesus, a Pentecostal Jesus, an Apostolic Jesus. I would say to you the only faith that I can, I am fully persuaded that will save you is in a biblical Jesus. Jesus said, he that believeth on me as the the scripture has said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And so that's, that is the restorative impulse of our faith. We are pursuing the original. We are not here to simply say that we are part of an organization that is called the United Pentecostal Church, and I do believe it is the best thing going. But if at any point... One of our eggheads, I mean uh, bishops, decides that what the Bible says must bow to what even Pentecostal tradition teaches. The, the scripture is superior to any tradition, be it Catholic, Baptist, Mormon, uh, 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 Calvin, Pentecostal. This is the gold standard. The word of God. We are built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So anytime in your walk with God, someone begins to talk to you about church history. And you may hang your head because you don't haven't read the 7,000 volumes of Calvin or Luther or all the church councils and popes. Don't hang your head. You don't need to know all that. If you'll study the scripture, if you will study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, our pursuit should be to rightly divide the word of truth. 
And if you have questions, there are people here at this church that can help you answer them. Uh, Brother, Brother Ryan, Brother BJ, and there's others. There's uh, uh, most of Sister Gloria. She probably could tell you a bunch of stuff. I have no doubt, right? I, I, I bet you could ask Brother Noah some stuff. He would know the answers. And, and uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I say or anybody else says. What does the Bible say? Now, the Bible is not uh, all-inclusive. It doesn't cover everything. It doesn't talk about uh, water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. It doesn't give us the number of the stars. It doesn't tell many how many species there are. We know God made it all. It's, it's conclusions. This is what we believe. Amen.